the duality of, of good and even, evil and, and heaven yes. and hell and yeah. God and the devil. Well, that is that is something that is um, that's strongly developed in, in Christianity, but you also find it in the religion. That's something that shows up in some form or another, to a degree or uh, to a certain degree or another in most religions. I don't know, I'm not enough of an expert on it to say that it's a universally a part of it, but, you know, like, uh, uh, religious Buddhism has heavens and has concepts of heaven and hell that are very similar to that. And uh, there's different ways that this can be, can be regarded as manifesting in the world. There's also much more sophisticated ways of interpreting that. Those are those are more, I think, the details of, they belong to the religious side of it. The religious side of it is where um, you have a conceptual framework with which to understand things. And there are certain problems that you need to solve. You need to solve the problem of good and evil as it's experienced in the world. And uh, there are problems of, uh, of, of justice, and right and wrong, and why, why things happen the way they do. Different religions will solve these problems in different ways. And to the extent that we're looking at the religious side of it, it's going to be conceptual, intellectual, understandable. It's whole, the whole point of the doctrine to solve the problem is something that people can understand and use as an explanation. And so it can take different forms. But if you keep in mind that that's what its job is, is to explain, you know, the, explain the questions that are in the hearts and the minds of the people that come, uh, that come to, the, to the teachers, then you can see that it may take many different forms but, but you can see how it's all in common, has that same thing. And at that level of thinking, everything is dualistic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There is a duality of self and other, and that's just the first of many, many dualities that appear. And basically, the way our human minds work, uh, when, when we take the amorphous, undifferentiated everything, the first thing we do is divide it in two. And then we can start dividing the two into more and more and more and more and categorizing it and organizing it and saying this relates to that, right? And now we have we have a way of understanding the world. And that's the way our minds work. That's the way that's the way we do everything that we do, and that's the way we do our religion too. But what I'm interested in talking about is the mystical side of it. Because another characteristic of the mystical side, wherever you encounter it, is that it abandons that kind of knowing, and it goes beyond that kind of thinking. Whether you're talking about uh, Vedanta, or Taoism, or uh, mystical Judaism, or Sufism, or Buddhism, or no matter where, you go and you look at it, it is going beyond. And it's, this is overtly stated, it's unmistakably put forward that, that you cannot conceptually understand 
what is being pursued in this. We have to go beyond that. And that it is not subject to the kind of distinctions and divisions and and dualization that that our mind wants to apply to everything. So, so in, in essence, when we talk about enlightenment, we're talking about a quite uncommon but universal experience amongst all human beings. Shamanic societies have the same mystical component to them. Uh, universally, there is uh, there is some sort of mysticism in every culture, and uh, it manifests. Its ultimate manifestation is in this. Uh, it's a state of uh, a new state of being, a transformed state of being that we call a light enlightenment, and the term enlightenment refers to the fact that that there is this new, profound understanding. There is the light of understanding that is shed on the human condition and that goes far beyond uh, uh, what the person ever knew before. Completely new way of knowing and understanding. Awakening. The way awakening part of it is when it's referred to as awakening, and this is the way it's referred to is in Buddhism, it is referring to that distinction as when you, from the illusion of a dream to the kind of clarity that you obtain on waking up to reality. It is that kind of transition. It's an awakening from being trapped in a, in a dream and an illusion to uh, reality. And, of course, that brings with it, as it does, uh, especially if it's a bad dream, it brings with it the immediate uh, relief, uh, the cessation of the difficulties and the fears and the challenges that were part of the dream. The liberation that this particular experience brings about liberation from suffering. That's that's a that is such a significant thing that often that is the way that it's described to achieve liberation. Another term that's used is realization. It's an interesting term. <laughs> realization to become realized. enter a, a totally new uh, state of being with regard to reality. You know, Before you were just imaginary, now you're real. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Anyway. Some of the things I... There was... There was uh, in, in the material that I handed you, 
I took something from a book called Mystics, Masters, Saints, and Sages, mm. Stories of Enlightenment by Robert Ullman and Judith Breckenberg Ullman. And they had collected many different stories of, of, uh, of saints and sages from many different traditions. And so I took some things from their introduction because it, I, I do want you to understand this universality. Um, so if you look here, so there's speaking of, uh, of those who, uh, who who have had these experiences, those who describe enlightenment experiences recount a shift out of their ordinary frames of reference. Their worldviews become remarkably different from what they had been before the experience. Many individuals report never again being the same and their sense of individuality and separateness evaporated, often permanently. And see, these are the same points I was making to you earlier. Um, This alteration leaves these enlightened beings in a state of freedom. They are still themselves, yet they are not. They continue to live out their lives in their physical bodies, yet their identification is no longer confined to the body or mind. For some, even the world itself, as anything more than illusion, disappears. Those who attain enlightenment become liberated, released from attachment to suffering and limitation of any kind. They are absolutely free and extraordinarily awakened. Now, in this description, uh, of course, these authors and many of these traditions make no distinction between different degrees or levels of enlightenment. Buddhism does. Buddhism makes clear that there are different degrees of enlightenment and they have different characteristics and they can be recognized and it is a progression, which clarifies some of the things that came out in this little introduction here. Uh, Many individuals report never being, again, being the same. It doesn't say all of them, right? Uh, there's a couple of other references in there with the same. Uh, if you look at that whole paragraph, you find that some of those descriptions are more extreme than others. And this reflects, I think, the fact that indeed there are degrees of this transformation that takes place. But what we're talking about is a transformation that uh, can can happen through a series of stages and becomes more and more complete. Uh, can tend to be deeper. Okay. And just knowing that answers a lot of questions that you otherwise might find confusing when you start uh, thinking about enlightenment or reading about enlightenment or reading about people who are supposedly enlightened. Uh, If you undertake that project, you will find that there are a lot of questions that come up. And I'm hoping by the time we're finished, if you did undertake that project, you won't have any trouble sorting out those questions. But this is one of the things that you'll look at these different accounts 
And they don't quite match up, but if you say, aha, maybe there are several different levels, and then all of a sudden you find, oh, now it makes sense. That account belongs to this level, and that account belongs to this one, you know, and so forth. And then it all makes sense to you. Okay, still speaking generally, not getting to Buddhist views on enlightenment yet. Um, what is an enlightened person like? Okay, there is something palpably different about someone who has undergone an experience that leads to enlightenment. There is a profound realization of living fully in the present moment. And, uh, of course, most of you probably heard of Eckhart Tolle and maybe listened to some of his talks. And this is so much an aspect of what it means to be enlightened that essentially this, this, this is the predominant point that Eckhart Tolle presents. But this is, this is of the essence of the uh, state of being of someone who is enlightened is that they are able to live fully in the present moment. They are also able to plan. <laughs> but when they're planning, they're fully in the present moment. <laughs> uh, they are not lost in the future and lost in the past in the sense that other people are. A deep sense of relaxation that arises from an understanding that there is nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. Uh, and just a very brief moment's reflection you know, will reveal to you that that this this is part of the problem, that we are haunted throughout most of our lives by the sense of trying to get somewhere else or do something else, are we not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A magnanimity, magnanimity and spaciousness is observed as compared to the finite, limited nature of the individual self and a complete sense of apparent indifference or non-attachment to the world or social norms may also be present. Enlightened beings often exude a sweetness that draws others to them, like bears to honey. Or contrarily, some may display a crusty, obnoxious, or obscene isolationism that drives away all but the most persistent and worthy aspirants. Though many, though many enlightened beings seek seclusion and remain unknown, Others attract thousands of seekers who come to uh, come to them for blessings and teachings. So this is this is an interesting thing here. We don't you don't find that all enlightened beings are the same. Some are sweet and lovable, and and some are crusty and obnoxious. And and some uh, make themselves available. Uh, to others quite freely, and others withdraw into isolation. There are, for example, if you look at uh, Tibet, with its tradition, of, uh, a long-standing tradition of Buddhism, and many people, uh, a very, comparatively speaking, uh, you know, it's a small proportion of, of the population, but comparatively speaking, it's a large proportion of the population who achieved some degree of enlightenment. Yet so many of them, so many of these enlightened beings are off in caves or off in huts, you know, and they may live outside a village in a particular valley and they're greatly revered and esteemed and acknowledged, their enlightenment is acknowledged, but they 
don't make themselves available, and they don't just they don't encourage people to come and uh, spend time with them. So, so what we're getting into now a little bit is what are the expectations that we may have of somebody that's enlightened. So an enlightened person isn't necessarily going to live up to our expectations of what they should be. The important characteristics of them, and, and once again, this this whole description you have to keep in mind is coming from the introduction to a book that is looking at uh, enlightenment across all all different religions and cultures, not not just looking at Buddhist enlightenment. So enlightenment in general, that's what we're excuse me, Philadelphia. Yeah. When somebody's really enlightened, I imagine they wouldn't have a great deal of concern about other people's expectations. Uh, it's true, they don't. That's, that's actually what I'm saying here. Is that uh, enlightened beings often, oh, let's see, where, where is that? Uh, a complete sense of apparent indifference or non-attachment to the world or social norms may also be present. Yeah, they're not particularly concerned with your expectations. But I, what I'm referring to is that is that if you have expectations about what an enlightened person is like, that's going to get in your way. Right, right, not theirs. <laughs> not theirs. That's not going to be their problem. Okay. There, there is a list here of, uh, starting on page two, uh, with a description of the when, when they went through all these different accounts. This is a more systematic enumeration of the same things that have been briefly uh, referred to uh, before. Uh, and these are worth looking at because we find that they, they really are they really are universal. Interconnectedness and ego transcendence. A fundamental shift in consciousness from the individual to the whole appears to typify the enlightenment experience. And you could almost say that's the, uh, the essence of it. It's certainly a part of the essence of it. This shift may be described in many different ways. And some examples here, the dissolution of self, a merging of the wave in the ocean, a union with the infinite. Uh, for example, just two very different examples. In Buddhism, it is taught that there is no self or soul. In the Vedanta, it's taught that there is a, a self or a soul called Atman, and that uh, that this is your true self, and that the self that you think you are is not your true self. That's an illusion, and that's false. But uh, Vedanta teaches that there is, beneath that, waiting to be discovered and uncovered, a true self. And the Buddhist enlightenment involves a complete transcendence of any attachment to or sense of being a separate self. And in Vedanta, it's described as being the discovery of the true self, and the true self achieves perfect union with Brahman, the ultimate source of all being. And superficially, these sound like rather 
different objectives, right? But hopefully you can see that they really, if you just take into account we have different ways of conceptualizing things, that they're really not... What's, what's more significant than the apparent differences of the terminology of Atman and Brahman on one side and the, uh, the total abandonment of separation. Uh, uh, and, and, and there's also... Now, what, have, what's, what there is when the self is abandoned is also a lot of different variations of that in Buddhism, you know. But uh, we, don't, we don't need to get into this. Once again, what we're going to find is all of that is concepts. The, if we look at what's actually taking place in these different people, what is in common is that, uh, that there is this shift in consciousness from the individual to a whole, the more holistic. Um, an ultimate truth the Buddhist discovers an ultimate truth in the abandonment of the notion of self. Whereas the, the Vedantist uh, discovers a divine union of the Atman with Brahman. But if we look at the individuals, if we examine the path, if we examine the experiences along the way, if we see how they act and react and behave afterwards, we have to say, hmm, you know, looks like a duck, walks like a duck. (laughs) They must all be ducks. Now, this is not always the case. There are mystical experiences. There are are degrees of enlightenment, levels of enlightenment, and they, uh, you know, they are not directly comparable. You put them side by side and you see the differences. And there are also mystical experiences that are not, that do not correspond to the particular one that we're focused on here, the one that's called enlightenment. There are other kinds of mystical experiences. But this is very fundamental. Timelessness and spaciousness. No thing or concept remains fixed in time and space. Enlightenment sets into play a moment-to-moment existence. In the words of the Buddha, the only thing that is constant is change. And this goes back to living, being able to be entirely in the present moment, entirely in the here and the now. You know, with a human mind, with all of its intellectual capacities for inferring the existence of a there and a then, and speaking in those terms, and and acting in the here and now in those terms. But there is, uh, whether it's obvious or whether it seems subtle to you, there is a tremendous difference between dwelling in that world of inferred space and time or being dwelling entirely in the present, in the here and now, and that's what's being referred to. Acceptance, this is a relaxation or surrender the revelation or insight that all is transpiring according to a plan or randomness. They had to put in, in they, when they went across all their descriptions, they had to put plan or randomness because that is, in fact, the spectrum that the conceptualizations present us with. Right? What's important here is that there is a relaxation or a surrender to what is. 
whether it's viewed as a divine plan or something else. It surpasses the individual will, which for this person, individual will means nothing. Struggle ends and gives way to acceptance of a reality free of bondage from an attachment to personal desires, thoughts, and feelings. And that really, that's really an important point there, too. Personal desires, thoughts, and feelings. I mean, is that not the prison that you're in? The prison of your desires, the prison of your thoughts. Don't you spend all of your time in the cage of your thoughts, rattling on the cage, and holding up to the bars? <laughs> and your feelings. You know, just just when you're getting comfortable in your prison, you know, the wrong feeling shows up. A bad So, so this is what's so wonderful about hmm. this altered state of being, this transformed state of being, is that you're free from that prison, beyond pleasure and pain. Those who have experienced enlightenment describe. Rapture, ecstasy, love, or simply a contentment that transcends suffering in the midst of transformation. Now, it also says that the journey can be rough, and that is important to make note of. The journey can be rough. Uh, St. John of the Cross that I mentioned earlier uh, wrote in uh, at, at great length and in depth about the sufferings that he, the inner suffering that he experienced as a part of his own particular journey, which he referred to as the dark night of the soul. And uh, in the uh, Visuddhi Magga, which describes the stages of insight, there are a series of stages known as the knowledges of fear, misery, disgust. You know, and so uh, this is something that likewise is is seen across different cultures and uh, systems in mystical practice that this goal is not attained without a certain amount of, uh, of struggle and pain. Basically because you have to give up uh, a lot that you're very, uh, very, very strongly attached to. And you go through a certain amount of separation grief, especially when you give up yourself. <coughs> Because it's the only one you've got. <laughs> so, um, John, it's like a, like you're sort of um, deconstructing your personality. Well, that that is that's a wonderful word, Cheryl. That's exactly what you're doing. You're deconstructing on these spiritual paths. You're deconstructing and reconstructing your personality to a certain degree. And you have to do that. Now, you start out being a person full of, of uh, uh, lust and avarice and, and hatred and with all kinds of bad habits that arise out of those. And you have to change the way uh, your personality functions. <clears throat> so there is a part of the process is a deconstruction of personality and a corresponding reconstruction of personality, a giving up of the unwholesome and replacing it with the wholesome. But there's another deconstruction that takes place that's even more important. You have to deconstruct the way that you normally 
perceive the way that you normally see the world and yourself. And that's really what the meditation practice is helping you to do. And that's what insight is about, is progressively peeling off these these layers. You're deconstructing the process by which your mind creates the delusion that you're trapped in. And so those are these deconstructives. There's, there's a deconstruction and reconstruction of personality, and there is also a deconstruction, a cognitive deconstruction, a deconstruction of a way to see and understand, which <clears throat> once you've completed the process, then your mind goes back to constructing reality, but now it's changed in a very fundamental way. So, yeah. But interesting, that word uh, deconstruction it captures the essence of a lot of what is involved on the path here. Beyond pleasure and pain. Uh, one of the things that you'll see, one of the characteristics of the first stage of enlightenment is that the enlightened person is no longer afraid of death. You know, and the, the liberation from that kind of suffering and that kind of fear only increases as one progresses through the subsequent stages of enlightenment. And there's one of the comments here is to, to, about uh, Ramana Maharshi and Ramakrishna having died of cancer. There's a book, I mentioned it to you last week, it's now going to be back in the library again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a... Uh, uh, what is the name of it? How graceful exits. What is it? Graceful exits. That's the name. Graceful exits. At how great beings, uh, how great beings leave. How great beings pass away. But it's a wonderful read of all these stories of enlightened beings from all kinds of different traditions. You know, Zen masters and and uh, swamis and uh, all kinds of different saints. And, and what you there, there's. I say three things to get from it. One is that enlightened beings get sick and die. Enlightened beings don't even live longer than ordinary people, but enlightened beings approach death in a totally different way. (laughs) Clarity. The enlightened mind is spontaneous, immediate, and flexible. Thinking is clear and unencumbered by extraneous and limiting thoughts and emotions. Thoughts are purposeful, direct, and in the moment, free of extraneous mind chatter. And the final thing that was listed, they listed here in this general description is shattering of preconceived notions, rigidity, expectations, preconceived ideas, and persona give way to a vaster reality, and even to a profound realization of emptiness, vastness, or nothingness. Now that last is an interesting thing because um, when you look at descriptions, well, I'll point out, first of all, let me point out that there are, we have two things on our hands here that we're going to have to look at carefully and, and, and keep clear of the difference in our mind. One is the nature and characteristics of an enlightened being, a, a, 
person who has become transformed in this way and what they are like. And a lot of the description we've had up to now is about what they are like. The other thing, uh, we don't want to confuse the two, is the experiences that many of them have that bring about that transformation. The enlightenment experience, as opposed to the state of being enlightened. Now, the enlightenment experience, and that's what this book was all about, a collection of enlightenment experiences. When you look at the descriptions of those uh, experiences, well, usually the person, the first thing is that it can't be described, and then they go on to describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you... Uh, you know, if you look at the uh, at the literature, it's, it's said that the enlightenment experience is ineffable, which means you can't describe it. Uh, yet it's it's described uh, at, at very great length in many different ways. But what this means, it's in this, it's a person that's had the experience has absolutely no problem at all talking about it to somebody else has had the experience. So it is not it is not completely beyond the realm of verbalization and linguistic expression. It is not. But the thing is that it there is what makes it ineffable is the insurmountable barrier between the person who has had an experience that is the other person absolutely has not and that is totally different than anything that they have. That's what makes it indescribable or ineffable. Nevertheless, people describe enlightenment experiences. And one of the uh, one collection of the terms that comes up, there's always an abundance of negative terminology, mm-hmm. negations, on this, non that, not this, uh, you know, uh, all all these. Uh, prefixes that, that mean uh, no and not. Yeah. And the other thing is in terms of emptiness, uh, nothingness, uh, vastness. Because it is an experience that it is completely, it, it is a kind of knowing that's completely different than our ordinary kind of knowing. Our ordinary kind of knowing is dualistic, subject-object. You know, you know, and it's finite. It's limited by space and time, and it's differentiated. I mean, I'm sure that you're sitting there right now. You can't even conceive of knowing that doesn't involve an object that's differentiated from other things, that is delimited in space and time rather than either infinite or eternal. I mean, infinity and eternity are words that we can understand abstractly in terms of definition, but you cannot project in your mind the actual meaning of infinity, can you? Mm-hmm. No, because human minds, it's not one of the things that, that, you know, it's like asking your computer to mow the grass. It doesn't, <laughs> you know... <laughs> So it's, there is that kind of gap. So how do you communicate that? And this is a kind of terms that kind of terminology that is used. You know. So there is a, a lot of this negative terminology. 
but it's not a negative experience. And above all, it's not a, an annihilationistic or a nihilistic experience, which it is often misunderstood to be uh, by, by somebody who look at descriptions like this and say, you know, that, oh, it's some sort of annihilation that takes place. That, mm. that, and, and it's not that. So that uh, the next note there in your handout, mystical versus mundane knowledge, the core concept. <laughs> this is really the core distinguishing difference between the the kind of knowledge, what we call mon- mundane knowledge, the mundane way of knowing. The there is it is dualistic. And what your mind does is it takes reality and it divides it up into pieces and it sets uh, consciousness and an object of consciousness into a a kind of uh, opposition to each other. And consciousness can take many different objects and move around, but you're always in this relationship of, of being conscious of. That kind of dualism. Um, <coughs> mystical knowing is a different kind of knowing, a completely different kind of knowledge. <clears throat> um, and I'll point out to you, logically, and this is many many scholars and philosophers and um, the scholastics of these mystical traditions have all figured this out that it makes no sense to posit that somehow that the human, a human being or a human mind could attain to something that wasn't already inherently or intrinsically present in some way or some form already. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but Just give it a moment. That, that you, there's, there's no, it makes no sense logically to posit that you are going to be able to achieve a kind of knowing that does not already, that you, the capacity for it does not already exist in you. Okay. It must already exist. Okay. Incapacity. What's that? In the capacity. The capacity, yes. Right. And so, indeed, we do have, we, call this, we can call this other kind of knowing direct knowing, direct knowledge, or direct experience, and distinguish the other kind as mediated knowledge or mediated experience. Mundane knowing is mediated. Means that, well, it's mediated in so many different ways. Um, our knowledge of the world is mediated by our sense organs. And the all that we know about uh, reality is limited by what our sense organs are able to uh, detect and communicate. But that is only the very beginning of it. Uh, it's mediated by the sense organs, and whatever information the sense organs provide must be interpreted. And it's interpreted partly by the structure of your brain. It's also interpreted partly by your past experiences, your expectations, by everything else. So all of this, all knowledge, all experience, 
every infinitesimal component of your experience, except for one exception, which I'll get to, is mediated knowledge. And what the mystic is after is cutting through all of that. That's the deconstruction to get at this direct knowledge, this unmediated knowledge, this direct experience. But that would not be possible if we did not already possess the capacity for it. And you do. Whether Whether you can tap into it Right now or not, I don't know, but I'm going to ask you to try. <clears throat> have you ever thought about what consciousness is? I'm sure most of you have. And those of you who have meditated have probably spent a lot of time trying to capture the essence of that. Some of you may have, uh, uh, some of you may have looked into. Uh, the answers that neuroscience provides. Others may have interest, uh, looked into the answers that, that psychology and philosophy provide to the question of what consciousness is. <clears throat> There's so very, very much that can be said about consciousness. And neurophysiologists can point to different parts of the brain and roles that they play in consciousness, but they can't find consciousness in the brain. They can look at different patterns of electrical activity taking place in the brain and find that some of those correlate with consciousness better than others, and some correlate with particular kinds of consciousness better than others. But if you think about it, none of that really gets to the root of the question of what consciousness is. So, but you, every single one of you, the way we normally know things, we mediated knowledge. You know, I take this object and I see it or I feel it. I have an objective experience of it. I can investigate it. I can know it quite thoroughly in that way, in many different ways. But it is always mediated. It's always separate. It's always dual. Now, if I, you know, I could ask you questions about all kinds of things that you experience, even those things like ask you to imagine things, ask you to imagine a rabbit with horns, ask you to imagine your grandmother's face, ask you to imagine this, that, or the other thing. Uh, Abstract things. I could ask you to take the concept of democracy or justice as a, an object and to contemplate it. Uh, all of those things, you're knowing them in this same objective, dualistic, and mediated way, right? Objective? It's subjective. Uh, ob- object it, in, oh, do uh, subject. Oh, subject. Well, all right. Okay. Okay. Subjective objective. <laughs> okay, yeah. 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 Yeah, okay. Now, I ask you a question. Do you know whether you're conscious or not? To what degree? I'm not concerned with degree. Are you conscious? Somewhat. Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. How do you know you're conscious? I think before I am. <laughs> that's well, well, by that one, will you? Yeah. Yeah. That's now. I, I. That's exactly what. Uh, that's exactly. I, I think what was taking place with Descartes when he said, "I think 
therefore I am. He just did not take it far enough. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and he he kind of left us left us hanging, you know. But now that's what I want you to think about. How do you know you're conscious? Well, look at it. How do you know you were conscious 30 seconds ago? Okay, a different question. And this will have a different answer. How do you know you were conscious at somewhere around 7.15 last night? I bet you're remembering what you were doing last night. You're remembering what you were seeing or feeling or hearing last night, right? That's objective knowing. Okay, so I ask you, were you conscious last night? You're doing the same old objective knowing. Are you conscious right now? How do you know? How do you know? Do you need to make reference to... Anything else? It's direct, is it not? Okay, thank you. So we have the capacity for direct knowledge, direct experience, and normally the only thing that applies to... And then you see, this is what keeps the philosophers and the psychologists, the clinical psychologists, and the neuropsychologists running around like a dog chasing its tail. Is they're trying to find the dualistic objective or subjective objective, the mediated, the way to demonstrate mediated in a, in a mediated subjective objective way, the reality of or the existence of or the nature of consciousness. And for the same reason that they have so much trouble doing it, that's exactly the same reason that you can know that indeed this kind of knowing that the mystics lay claim to and that is the vehicle for enlightened realization that you have it, that we all have it, that we every have, that every one of us has it, because you know immediately, directly, in an unmediated, completely unmediated way, that you are conscious. But so, only in the now. Only in the now. That's exactly right. Only in the now. Well. <clears throat> You, you're, you don't need to do the same thing you do. I asked you about being conscious at 7.15 last night, and you had to dredge up stored records from neural complexes uh, and become conscious of them in order to make a determination that, oh yeah, that was one of those times I was conscious. But when I asked you about 30 seconds ago, you don't need to do that. There is, uh, you know, it, it, it does, it, that is, it's, not a li- it's not limited to the instantaneous present. There is a short period of time over which this uh, immediate knowledge uh, accommodates things. So. So when we talk about enlightenment, we are talking about a very special, very different way of knowing. And we have to recognize that. 
When you're doing meditation and you're in pursuit of insight, you will gain a certain kind of insight that is mediated, that is the result of intellectual process, that's a result of deductive process, but the important insights that you gain will be direct realizations. They will be in the moment. You will have a moment of just knowing that this is true. No matter how many books you read or how many people tell you that everything is impermanent, everything is insubstantial, and everything is empty, no matter how much you analyze that, no matter how many exercises and, and uh, problems that you devote to that, you won't know it in the same profound sense that one of these times you're going to know it when all of a sudden you are it. When you are it. You are going, you are, that's the direct knowing. I mean, you are consciousness. That's why you have the direct experience. And you're going to have the direct experience of what we use these terms, uh, you know, uh, impermanence and, and insubstantiality and emptiness to, to convey conceptually. And it's really good to think about those. And it's really good to find examples of those and to prove it to ourselves. Because the more the, more the part of your mind that, that mediates everything becomes convinced that this is true, then the thinner the veil is that it's going to create between that direct experience uh, you know, and uh, the, the thinner its constructs are going to be that you have to break through. So the more clearly that you can understand it, the more evidence that you can gain. And as a matter of fact, the, the poorest part of the process is the intellectual analysis. As a philosopher, you can become totally convinced of the emptiness of everything. As a matter of fact, most modern philosophers know the truth that Buddhists call emptiness since the time of Immanuel Kant. Post-Kantian Western philosophy is the philosophy of emptiness. They call it phenomenology, but it is a philosophy that recognizes that everything we know is a construct of our mind. Philosophers speculate about, they have a word, it's a funny word, called heil. That's whatever the reality is in and of itself, which they say must be out there. And so they debate, can it be known in itself ever? Is it ever knowable? And in general, the consensus view is, no, it can never, ever be known. It is, un it is unknowable because we can only know, because all knowledge is mediated and all experience is mediated, so all we can ever know is the product of the mediating process. Actually, the Buddhist scholastics, medieval Buddhist scholastics, had exactly the same debate. So, but my point is, all of these Western philosophers in the universities in the United States and Europe and other places like that, they know the truth of emptiness. How come they're not enlightened? Because it's not the experience. They only know it intellectually. 
And not only that, they don't spend the time going out and saying, wow, if this is true, let me see if I can see it. In, you know, uh, you know, they don't go. Uh, they don't put themselves in the position to catch their mind in the act. Uh, you know. It, yes. It sounds like the difference between reading about love and loving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be a good comparable example. Reading about love and loving. The same thing is true with no self. This is another profound truth of Buddhism. You know. And, and we won't even address, uh, we won't even pretend to get close to, you know, true self versus no self. Let's just, you know, let's just stick with no self. And, and for the time being, accept that those who call it true self, ultimately it's going to come down to be the same thing. Okay. No self. In, in Buddhism, it is stated that the self that you believe you are is an illusion. It does not exist. There are the five aggregates, and they go about doing things, but there is no single, uh, separate, continuous doer and experiencer behind all of that. That is a fabrication of your mind. Now, same thing. Modern philosophers, clinical psychologists, and neuroscientists have come to exactly the same conclusion. Daniel Dennett is one. Well, some of them still argue. There's a few of them that claim that somehow, you know, they're looking for the ghost in the machine. Somehow they're going to find this self somewhere. But the, the, the consensus that 20th century science and philosophy and psychology has come to is that the self that we think we are doesn't exist. And I asked you the same question. Okay. So the Buddha said, you know, that, that's the thing. Realizing that, that's, that's the first stage of enlightenment. How come none of these people are enlightened? And it's exactly the same thing. You can know it intellectually. It's like a physicist. He can know that this bowl is 99% empty space, and his hand is 99% empty space. And, you know, but he's not going to be crazy enough to try to stick his hand through the bowl. Because knowing something at an intellectual level doesn't change the way we experience things. It doesn't change our worldview. And to understand that the self is an illusion intellectually has absolutely no effect on how you react when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you know, or your girlfriend leaves you, or your house burns down, you know, or you get a raise, or it doesn't matter what it is, you know. You you behave as if you are this self that you've always thought you were. It has absolutely no effect at all to know it intellectually. On the other hand, if you know that, if you can if you can if you can overcome the logical resistance you have to it, then you can start watching yourself, and this is what you do in meditation. You watch yourself. And then when you get good at it, this is what you do outside of meditation. You practice mindful awareness. You watch what happens. Uh, you have an experience, you watch how your mind reacts to it. You watch all the steps that it goes through. And after a while, it starts to be, you have more and more of these little mini epiphanies that, huh, I didn't decide to do that. 
Nobody was seeing that. The seeing was just happening, you know. Uh, in the seeing, just the seeing. Right? In the hearing, just the hearing. You start to have that experience. And as you do, it begins to really make that veil of understanding kind of thin. Yes? So if there's no self, then how do you explain who's observing you when you meditate? Are, are, are you saying that... Um, that there's nothing there, or are you saying that we're all connected, and if we're all connected, then why don't I know what you're thinking about? Okay, well, now there's all kinds of ways that you can understand that, and that's why we spend so much talking about it. Now, I'm going to say, okay, first of all, to say that there is no self, it doesn't mean that you don't exist, because, I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? You, you know you exist. You have absolutely no question about it, that, that you exist. Um, actually, it goes back to that other thing. It's because you have the direct experience of being conscious. That's really how you know you exist. <laughs> but you infer a whole lot of other stuff that you add to that. And, and you add it all up together, and you have no question at all that you exist. But you may think that you make decisions. I decide. It certainly feels like that, doesn't it? In this handout, I gave you gave you towards the latter part of it when I'm discussing arhats in Buddhism. Uh, there's a rather lengthy discussion of exactly that point, which uh, I'll uh, ask you to read. But the the self that we think we are, and you know, people have spent time analyzing that so that we can describe it. What is it that we're assuming? What are we talking about uh, when we talk about a self? What is the self that doesn't exist? Well, we think that it is, we feel and think both. We, we have both the idea and the feeling that our self is one thing. We've always been this self. Is that not true? Right. Um, furthermore, uh, uh, it, it's well, uh, okay. That was actually the, that we've always been self is that it's enduring. The first thing is that it's one. We don't feel like there's two of us, unless you're multiple personality or something like that. You feel like there's only one of you, and that it's enduring. It's always been the same, and you know, pretty much, you're not concerned that tomorrow you wake up somebody else, right? Uh, separate. You have no doubt that you are are separate from, that there's something else that you're separate from. And the other where the, the other things that are, are present in this presumption of a self is we think that, that, that the self is the experiencer of all of the things that we see and hear and think and so forth. And we also think the self is the doer or the initiator of our actions, the decider, the maker of our choices. So this is the self we're talking about. And if you examine that, you, it, it, it begins to fall apart as soon as you begin to examine it. You'll find that, uh, and, and I don't know whether this is a good time to go into it or not, but just I'll go over it in general. Each of these points you can examine. You can say, okay, um, I know that 
that what I'm basing this on is this physical body by which I see and taste and hear and touch and feel and smell. And this mind that takes in the information from the senses. I mean, how do I know I have a body? Well, I see my body and I feel my body, and so I infer it has a particular nature. My mind is taking in that sensory information. So there's the body and the mind. And my mind, what does it consist of? Well, my perceptions, obviously, like, you know, the perceptions I have of what I see and feel and so forth. And uh, the uh, thoughts and emotions. And then the memories. And then all of my habits and my conditioning and everything else like that. And my feelings, you know, happy, unhappy, pleasant, unpleasant, and so forth. These are called the five aggregates in Buddhism. But they don't have to be analyzed into five. You could analyze them any way you want. What it comes down to is you have a body and you have a mind. And you're familiar enough with that that you can analyze it. And you can observe it. And if you analyze it and observe it, nowhere will you find in there this separate self. Instead, you'll find that that body and the mind is basically doing all the things that you thought a separate self was doing. Now, where it gets trickiest of all in the analysis, you can satisfy yourself that that uh, you are not one thing. Your personality has many sides to it. It's constantly changing. You're very different than you were when you were seven years old. And you're very different now than you will be when you're... 67 years old. Many things like that. So you're constantly changing. Um, There are different ways that you can analyze it to realize how totally interconnected you are and how dependent your state of being is at any one time on your environment, on other people, on your interactions and everything like that. But what's really telling is when you get in there and you realize that Experience is happening, but there really isn't any separate experiencer that you can find. And decisions are being made, but there isn't a decision maker. And that's what I'm describing in here. And I'd really appreciate it if you have time to read over that tonight, and then maybe tomorrow you can raise some questions. Or hopefully tomorrow we'll get around to talking about that in more detail. I'd like all of you to read through this tonight, okay, so that we can talk about this. Because I tried to explain to you What's really happening when you think you're experiencing, having this experience of being self? And once again, how did I find out about this? I didn't read a book that explained it to me. I sat down, closed my eyes, and watched what was happening. And and this is is where the answers come from, from the direct experience. So... The kind of self that you think you are doesn't exist. There is a body and a mind, but the closer you look, it, it in no way is what you thought it was. Not only does it not somewhere in it contain a self, uh, nor does it belong to a self that stands outside of it, nor does it collectively constitute a self, but there's no self in there at all. And then you look closer at each of the components of it. You look at the body and you find 
Well, the body is not what you thought it is. The body is visual information, tactile information, uh, auditory information. You hear yourself talk, you hear your stomach growl, you know. Uh, but your body is something that your mind has constructed to account for the sensory input. <laughs> and so on. And the more you look, you look at your mind, every aspect of your mind, you look at it, and you look at it, and it's, oh, okay, that's what it is. And then the closer you look, the, the less it is what you thought it was. The more you realize it, it's not that after all. And this, this is the process that if you, in, and you don't need to engage in that process, but it's very helpful. If you engage in that process, you'll become intellectually convinced that that this self that I thought I was and for that matter everything else that I thought I understood is not in any way like I thought it was. And that, that is a revelation. And the next step in that is to take the opportunity to apply that knowledge to see if you can see through the illusion. And as you succeed in doing that, as you have the opportunity of observing the illusion itself, then what happens is your intuitive view of things starts to change. Now you said, I think you started off the question, I want to go back to something, who is watching? When you're meditating, who is watching? Okay, that is a wonderful question. You know, I can't give you the answer, but I can guarantee you you're going to find it really is the most fascinating thing in the world if when you meditate, you keep asking yourself that question. Who's, who's watching? Who's experiencing this? You are, remember your conscious. You, that is the one thing you can be sure of. You have a direct experience of it, and everything else comes down to that in the end. And so there is consciousness of the events that are taking place when you're meditating. But it's when you look for a who behind that that it gets to be interesting and turns out to be quite different than you thought. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It does not mean that you don't exist, and it doesn't mean that there's nobody observing your mind when you're meditating, because there most definitely is. This is, none of this is contradicting the most, your experience at the most fundamental level. It's contradicting your experience at the most mentally contrived level, and it is totally consistent with your experience at the most fundamental level. Yes? When you talked earlier about the qualities of an enlightened being, um, part of it is non-attachment and indifference to the world. How does concepts like uh, compassion, uh, being of service, even commitment to something which is already in itself an attachment, when you commit to a project or an, a, a cause or a creative impulse, mm -hmm. how does it fit into that? Okay. Well, first of all, indifference, uh, as it was used in, and, and, and we haven't got to Buddhist descriptions, in the general description, indifference was not referring to indifference to other people, or lack of compassion, or indifference to suffering. 
it was indifference to norms and standards and expectations because uh, the more the more that a person undergoes this transformation the the less interest or concern or, or reaction response they have to you know they're coming from a much more real uh, and meaningful uh, place so they're not concerned with some, what somebody thinks about them, uh, unless, of course, what somebody thinks about them has some ramifications in terms of uh, the suffering of others or their ability to ease the suffering of others or something like that. But then that's a different case mm -hmm. because they do have they they do have compassion. And as far as commitment goes, uh, you say that's a form of attachment. Well, we do have to be careful with these words. We say that. Uh, one of the interesting things about an enlightened person is that they don't have attachment. And when we examine our problems, we see that so many of our problems come because we do have attachment. And then we say, take the word attachment by itself, you know, as if devoid of any context, it is a total answer. Therefore, everything to which I can, atta can attach, <laughs> everything to which I can attach, the English word attachment, is uh, something that an enlightened being won't have. Well, that's not true. His head will still be attached to his shoulders, for example. <laughs> Hopefully. And he can still make a commitment to do something. And yes, you could describe that as an attachment, but that's not the kind of attachment that we're worried about. And the same thing, you know, some people say, well, desire, desire is the cause of all suffering. Desire is bad, so I shouldn't desire nirvana. I shouldn't desire enlightenment. Yeah. Well, you know, that's not what we mean. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, that's not the kind of desire that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Although it has something of the flavor of, of that is the problem. If, if our desire for enlightenment turns into that kind of lustful craving, it will get in the way, and we won't be able to become enlightened, but but to say to to you to make a, an English sentence that I desire enlightenment does not mean that I'm engaging in a very unwholesome mental state that is problematic to me. So you do make a difference between what yeah. is a good desire, what is a bad desire, isn't that to us? We're, we're going to have to, because otherwise we're going to confuse ourselves and say, well, if absolutely everything I can attach desire to is a bad thing, then you know. I, I shouldn't desire that you get over your disease because that's a bad thing. You know? yeah. <laughs> or desire to drink water. Yes. Right. Yeah. Thirsty. Yeah. Well, and that's a good example too. The body, you know, the, the, the Buddha's body needed water. The Buddha's brain created that sensation that we call thirst. And the Buddha said to Ananda, take my bowl and go down to the river and bring me some water. You know? And that was not that's not at all the kind of that's not at all the kind of thirst or craving or anything else that is being spoken of as, as being a problem. Mm. Mm. Huh. Tuldas, when when you asked whether we were conscious mm -hmm. and I said to a degree um, I think, to me, when I say conscious, it's like being awake. And, and I think the degree we are 
awake is different for each of us. You know, the more enlightened someone is, in, in my frame of reference, the more awake they are, yes. and therefore the more conscious they are. So, um, and I was kind of hearing you think, refer to consciousness as a yes or no. I, I was only interested in, in identifying as presence or absence. I wasn't denying that we can further distinguish between uh, degrees of consciousness and types of consciousness and different states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't denying that or negating that. Okay. But uh, I, I, I just wanted us to get, you know, well, you, you found the right thing there. You thought about it and said, oh, I got it. Right? <laughs> yeah. that's, what, that's all that I was concerned about. Okay. But yes, of course. Um, and it's time for me to let you go to the washroom and have a break. But just, uh, the other thing that I'll say about uh, that uh, d- degrees of consciousness and whether you're conscious or not, some of you have been meditating a while may know this. You know, we normally think, okay, when I'm awake, I'm conscious. And when I'm asleep, I'm not conscious. Well, except maybe when I'm dreaming, I'm conscious. But those of you who've been practicing longer may have already started discovering that even when you're asleep and not dreaming, you're conscious. Mm-hmm. So, and this, if you've reached that point, then you would it would have been even more obvious to you what I mean about direct knowing. When you are in deep sleep, there is there is no objective knowing at all. The mechanisms for mediated knowing are are not operating at that time. So uh, in the consciousness that's present in deep sleep, it's a very subtle consciousness. But when you do come to the point that you know of it, you know, it's very much that direct knowing. It is knowing by being. It's knowing by being, not knowing as as an object. Anyway, let me give you a break uh, for washroom and to have some tea and things like that. And then I'll ring the bell when it's time for us to come back.